Section 18 of The Romance of Polar Exploration. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Piotr Natter. The Romance of Polar Exploration by G. Firth Scott. Chapter 15. The Southern Cross Expedition. The first British expedition for many years was that which sailed from the Thames in 1898 on board the Southern Cross, under the leadership of C. E. Borchgrevink, with the object of penetrating as far as was possible to the south and exploring the Antarctic continent, or as much of it as could be visited during a year's stay in those latitudes. The leader of the party had already been on this continent in 1894, when he voyaged into the Antarctic on board a whaler. He had landed on South Victoria Land and Possession Island, and had reached as far south as 74 degrees 10 minutes south. He had discovered a sheltered beach near Cape Adar, which he recognized as an ideal site for the headquarters of an exploring party equipped for a prolonged stay. On the same occasion he was fortunate in finding a lichen growing on the rocks of Cape Adar, which was the first instance of terrestrial plant life being observed in the Arctic. Imbued with enthusiasm as to the prospects of successful observation being carried out from this point, he strove to arouse public interest in the project. He found plenty of interest, but not much financial support, until he had the good fortune to meet Sir George Newness, baronet, in 1898. That gentleman caught some of the enthusiasm which actuated Borchgrevink, and undertook to provide the necessary capital to enable the expedition to be formed and dispatched. Thereafter, there was no delay in the matter of organizing the expedition. The Southern Cross, a small bark-rigged steamer of 276 tons and built by Colin Archer, the builder of the Fram, was secured and placed under the command of Captain Bernard Jensen. With stores and equipment for some years, a crew of Norwegians, an efficient scientific staff, and a large kennel of Arctic dogs, she left St. Catherine's Dock on the 22nd of August, 1898, amid much popular demonstration, and sailed for Tasmania. Arriving at Hobart early in December, she took in further supplies, and sailed again on the 19th of December for the Antarctic. On the 30th of December, in latitude 61 degrees 57 minutes south, and longitude 153 degrees 53 minutes east, she encountered the first ice, and a few days later was among the floes. Some carrier pigeons had been taken on board at Hobart, and they were liberated when the vessel was well within the ice limit. One was absent for about a week before it returned to the ship, but the majority returned almost at once. On the 14th of January, 1899, land, Balleny Island, was sighted in latitude 65 degrees 44 minutes south, and longitude 163 degrees 38 minutes east, and the Southern Cross was soon fast in a pack. Advantage was taken of the opportunity to lay in a store of seal flesh for the dogs. Two varieties were met with on the ice, leopard seals and white seals, both so unaccustomed to the presence of men that the explorers had no difficulty in walking up to them and killing them as they lay on the ice. After being held for a week, the first nip was experienced. The movement in the ice was very pronounced, and the high-pressure ridges were thrown up. When the pressure caught the ship, 
there was some uneasiness in the minds of those on board as to how she would stand the strain she disposed of all fears so far as she was concerned by rising a clear four feet when the nip was at its worst thereby adding another instance to the record of her builder as a cunning designer of ships for ice navigation for a period of forty-eight days they were held in the pack and the ice then becoming more broken it was decided not to try any further to reach to the south of baleny island instead it was determined to go direct to cape adar and establish the headquarters while the summer was still with them on the twelfth of february a few days after getting into open water and when the vessel was making good progress under sail and steam she was noticed to shake violently no ice was in sight nor anything else that could account for it but there came a tremor which lasted for a couple of seconds followed by another after an interval of three seconds the phenomenon was noticed by men in all parts of the ship and no explanation could be given for it a couple of days later they ran into heavy weather during which the temperature fell so low that everything became covered with ice an experience which was very similar to that which befell the ships forming sir james ross's expedition in eighteen forty two the ship had to lay to for two weeks until the weather abated and on the second day after resuming her course land was sighted and the southern cross steamed into robertson bay in sight of cape adar and the spot where the headquarters of the expedition were to be built the camp consisted of four huts which were promptly erected and filled with the stores and equipment the landing party consisting of ten made their home in one of the huts utilizing the others for the storage of provisions equipment and other impedimenta the dwelling hut was constructed with three doors opening inwards so as to facilitate the escape of the residents should they become snowed in between the outer and the middle doors there was a four-foot lobby of which a small room opened on either side one of these was devoted to the development of photographs and the storage of the more delicate instruments while the other was the taxidermist's studio both these rooms were lined with wool and fur and were entered through small sliding trapdoors two feet above the ground the interior of the hut formed one room fifteen feet square and with ten banks constructed along the north and east walls each bank being closed in so that the occupant could lie within out of sight of the others a very serviceable arrangement under circumstances where ten men were compelled to be in one another's company morning noon and night for several months at a stretch the windows faced the west and were double framed with a space of three inches between the frames the walls were also double with papier-mache packing between while the ceiling was seven feet above the floor also packed with papier-mache and had above it an attic where stores which required keeping fairly warm were placed before they had everything completed on shore a furious gale sprang up and from the twenty-third to the twenty-sixth of february all the energies of the party were required to keep the ship from being lost she dragged her anchor and drifted dangerously near the coast before steam could be got up and even when the engines were at full speed she could barely do more than hold her own once two steel cables and a hawser were run out round a jutting rock to afford her some stay but they snapped like threads where the puff caught her and for the rest of the time she was kept standing off and on under the lee of cape adar 
during the winter the explorers had further experience of the character of these southern gales the wind often attaining a velocity of eighty-five miles an hour representing a force capable of lifting up and carrying bodily away such a thing as a whaleboat while the air was at such times filled with pebbles and small stones blown from the high lands behind the camp on one occasion so fierce was the strength of the wind that it was found impossible to crawl on hands and knees and with the assistance of a guiding rope from the hut to the thermometer's box a couple of hundred yards away the heaviest member of the party a man over thirteen stone was blown from the rope and nearly lost while attempting the journey on the second of march everything was in order at the huts and the shore party landed to take up their residence the flag presented to the expedition by the duke of york was hoisted the southern cross dipped her ensign to it everybody cheered and the vessel steamed out of the bay for new zealand leaving the devoted ten the only occupants of the great unknown continent which lies two thousand five hundred miles to the south of australia they were not long before they commenced work cape adar was explored and its height determined to be three thousand six hundred and seventy feet above sea level vegetation in the form of lichens was traced up to a thousand feet to which level it was found the penguins made their crude nests and hatched their young snow lay deep after three thousand feet but no signs of life vegetable or animal were discovered at that altitude in the waters below and around the cape several specimens of algae medusa hydroids and other low forms of marine life were secured in addition to these specimens it was also discovered that there was abundance of fish in the deeper waters of the bay these were caught both by net and line and the members of the expedition were agreeably surprised when it was found that they were nearly all edible for a constant diet of preserved food soon palls even on the healthiest appetites as the ice spread further out over the bay the fishing was conducted through a hole cut through the ice and it was not uncommon experience of the fisher to be suddenly confronted with the startled eyes of a seal which had risen from the depths below under the belief that the opening was a blow-hole for his convenience on the fifteenth of may they saw the sun disappear below the horizon above which it would not reappear until the twenty seventh of july the sun as it disappeared presented a curious optical phenomenon its reflection appeared as a large red elliptical glowing body which gradually changed into a cornered square while the sky in its immediate vicinity revelled in a blaze of colours as the sun slowly sank the colours grew in intensity reaching the height of their vivid beauty as the last of the globe sank out of sight the aurora australis continued to give them displays of colouring throughout the time when the moon was not shining and the sky was otherwise dark the temperature sank very low at times during the night minus twenty five degrees fahrenheit being recorded soon after the sun went below the horizon while later on the records were as low as minus fifty seven degrees fahrenheit inside the hut however the cold was not severely felt the construction proving excellent for the comfort of the men the numbers of seals killed for the dogs enabled them to cover the roof with the skins before it became snowed over while the ample supply of fur and woolen clothing kept the expedition well clad 
With one exception, the winter passed without an untoward incident, the exception being the illness of the zoologist of the party, who, after being carefully nursed by the doctor and all the others, succumbed to internal complications and died on the 13th of October. This was the only fatality during the expedition, and the loss of one out of so small a party naturally had a saddening effect on the survivors. Before he died, he indicated a spot a thousand feet up the slope of Cape Adar, where he wished to be buried, and, needless to add, his comrades loyally carried out his last wishes. He died just at the time when the penguins, the study of which so engrossed him, were returning over the ice to their nesting quarters. The first one arrived a few hours before his death, and it was taken to him at his request. The place where he sleeps is on the line where vegetation ceases, and above which the penguins do not build. It was a pity he did not live to see the return of the penguins, for they came in myriads with the approach of spring. They advanced over the ice in a long line, walking in single file, and apparently in detachments of about sixty birds in each. They must have marched for many miles, as there was no open water nearer, from whence they could have come, and they are not able to fly. As soon as they reached the land, they spread out in such a way as to suggest that each pair went to the nest they had occupied before. These were simple affairs, consisting of little more than a few pebbles, arranged in a ring on beds of guano. As a rule, two eggs were laid in each nest, and, for a month, male and female shared the labor of sitting on them, commencing in November and remaining on the nest until the young came out in December. The chicks were fed by the parent birds until they were fairly well grown, when they were driven into packs and left to look after themselves, with only occasional help from the older birds. When they were able to look after themselves, without further assistance, the parents departed. On such occasions a curious habit was observed. The birds of a detachment seemed to wait for one another until all were ready, when they would strut in a solemn procession to the water's edge. Usually the wide breasts of the birds were spotlessly clean, but the time they spent on the nests made them very dingy in appearance. As they strutted down to the water's edge, they were all sadly in need of a bath, yet on arrival at the edge they would stand about, shiver, flap their diminutive wings, and manifest all the hesitation which is shown by timid bathers when about to take a plunge. Nothing would induce them to enter the water until they were ready in their own good time, attempts on the part of the explorers to drive them in merely resulting in the birds turning round and strutting on to the land again when at length the time came for the plunge one would flap his wings utter a cry and take a header whereupon the others would follow one after the other all in line and so rapidly that they presented the appearance of a stream being poured out of a bottle the plunge over they returned to the shore spotless and clean as the gales were not over when the birds were sitting they were watched to see how they would prevent themselves from being blown away by the fierce gusts almost as soon as the barometer gave indications of the approach of a gale the birds were seen to turn their heads towards the southeast the quarter from whence the winds came and lie close to the ground with their heads down and their breasts pressed close to it on no occasion was a bird seen to be blown away from the nest during December, when the weather became milder, the interesting discovery was made that insect life exists on the Antarctic land. 
some specimens were found among the mosses growing on the shore and the excitement which followed the discovery led one of the finns two of whom were included in the party to unconsciously play an effective practical joke on the others he found a dead blowfly in a case of jam and brought it to the hut as a trophy for a time there was even greater excitement until someone thought to ask where the fly had been captured on the twenty ninth of january nineteen hundred the southern cross returned she arrived in the bay at a time when the explorers were sleeping after some heavy journeys the captain landed and walking up to the hut pushed the door open and entered he had the mail bag with him and flung it on the table with a loud cry of post in a moment the banks were empty the sound of a strange voice rousing all the men to say nothing of the prospects of receiving news from the world out of which they had been so long as there was no time to be lost if they were to penetrate further to the south before the mild weather passed they moved on board the ship as soon as they could and by the second of february the southern cross steamed away again with all on board they made excellent progress passing mount melbourne on the second of february approaching near enough to the coast opposite the mount terror to permit them to land after which they steamed along the great ice barrier until they found an opening into which they steamed so as to enable a sledge party to land and push forward to the south it was this sledge party which reached farthest south being on the sixteenth of february in latitude seventy eight degrees fifty minutes south the highest latitude reached up to that time but it was while they were ashore at mount terror that one of the most exciting incidents of the whole journey occurred the party landed at a small beach which lay under cliffs towering five hundred feet above in order to get photographs of it the boat was dispatched back to the ship for a camera while the Borchgraving and Jensen remained ashore. The boat had not gone very far when a great roar sounded in the air. Those on shore feared for the moment that a slide had begun in the cliffs over their heads, but it was not the rocks that were moving. A mighty glacier, which entered the sea near where they were standing, was shedding an iceberg from the parent mass, and the noise was caused by the rending of the ice, as the millions of tons mass tore itself free the beach was barely four feet above the water and as the berg crashed into the sea it sent up a great wave that swept along the coast the men on the beach barely saw it coming before it was over them pressing themselves against the face of the cliff at the highest point they could reach they held on for dear life while the icy water surged up and over them after the first wave had passed others followed though these only reached up to their armpits and had it not been for a projecting point of rock which served to break the force of the waves there is little doubt but that both would have been swept away the full force of the waves was shown only a few yards away from where the two had stood stones being torn loose and the mark of the water being left twenty feet up the face of the cliff having reached farthest south the homeward journey was begun on the nineteenth of february and three days later the southern cross steamed into port ross in the island of auckland the expedition was then practically at an end having succeeded so well in its objects that it was able to claim that it had located the southern magnetic pole as being in latitude seventy three degrees twenty minutes south and longitude one hundred and forty six degrees east had discovered insect and plant life on the antarctic continent 
had reached the farthest south and had added very considerably to the geographical and scientific knowledge of the world. End of section 18